All right, all right, all right. I'm Gib Gerard, and this is Intelligence for Life, the podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Alongside me is none other than John Tesh. John, how you doing? I'm, do- I'm doing well. We were just talking about this theme. Because this theme, this very theme. <laughs> this theme music, because um, now it's being uh, used uh, for basketball. And, for, uh, uh, for college basketball, college basketball on Fox basketball. Sports. Yeah, yeah, which is cool. Uh, I, I, um, I, I, I was, um, I was sort of stunned reading some of the comments from Twitter and that people are like, no, you can't use that. It's yeah. that's, 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 that's uh professional basketball theme. I'm like, wait a second. I'd like to make a little, little <laughs> pocket change here. You know? I mean, look, it's uh, it's an iconic theme and the reaction on Twitter was really exciting in a second before we get too much into this. Our guest today is Charles Duhigg, author of the power of habit and smarter, faster, better. Two phenomenal books, links to those in the show notes. Uh, He's going to tell us how you can make one key change in your life that will then cascade into making you an overall better person just by understanding how habits are formed in something called a keystone habit. So we'll get to that interview in a second. Yeah, Uh, yeah, let me me just throw in here. uh, At the end of the interview that Gib uh, just did with him, I am such a fanboy with this guy. Uh, with the two books that Gib uh, mentioned, um, smarter, uh, what, what uh, smarter, better, faster, right? And uh, power, the power, uh, power of habit. Power of habit. Uh, I first I listened to it, and then I read both those books, uh, and they really, I mean, uh, I, and I, I know he, he must have done a great job uh, on the interview, but uh, boy, this is going to be a tremendously well listen to podcast because uh, I can't even believe you got him. It's great. What did you tell him? I, I, I lied and I told him you were going to be. No, <laughs> no you didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't. The, the, the key, you He's know, again, so busy. What we're trying to do with this podcast is take the experts that we talk to on a regular basis to, um, to, to create the content for intelligence for your life's radio show, intelligence for your health radio show, and actually have a longer conversation with some of these people, yeah, as well as yeah, you and I having right. a longer conversation about the content that we have to talk about. You guys may not realize this, we have to get out in 90 seconds when we're on the air, yeah. when we're on the radio. We have yeah. 90 seconds to make it entertaining and give you as much information as possible. And sometimes the information is more nuanced, and we would like to talk more about it. And that is, again, what we're trying to do here with Charles. And, That's and a good way to put it. very thankful that he that he took the time to sit down with us. And, and I left that interview being very inspired and very excited about getting to share it with you. So um, uh, we, are, we are pumped. Uh, but, uh, but back to Round Ball Rock, which was the theme that opened this podcast— uh, again, airing now on uh, Fox Sports, yeah, uh, yeah. NCAA basketball coverage. Yeah, it's it's great. I'm just you know, and it's 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 funny. The uh, I do an interview every now and then with uh, with the USA Today or some one of these podcast guys, you know, and it's it's so funny when you write a song so many years ago, and then it just sort of pops back up. It's um, it's like a kid who does well in school or becomes you know becomes a doctor or something. Yeah, 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 <laughs> Nothing yeah. like that, but you know. <laughs> well, yeah, your kid's all grown up and it's and it's out there in college now. <laughs> Ironically, from when you wrote it to now yeah. is about what it yeah. would take for that yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, yeah. well, listen. The, the the meat of this podcast is the, is Gibbs' interview with Charles Duhigg, but but I wanted to do something, so I wanted to get Gibbs' take on a couple of things that we've got a, a real big reaction to on, on Facebook, if you'll indulge me before we get to And you, you can always fast-forward through this if you want, but, I, but it's, <laughs> you know, that's what I would do. But no. We wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, but it's it's about uh, – uh, there's a lot of me in this one piece I wanted to share with you, uh, Gib. Uh, so there's – it's speaking of, uh, of research, which Charles Duhigg does a, a lot of, so uh, the the uh, scenario is it, for you for you ladies if you're on a dinner date with a guy and you 
changed your outfit halfway through, do you think you would notice? Now, I probably wouldn't, and, I can, yeah. I, and I'll tell you more about that later. But So researchers tried the experiment to see what happened. They, they tried it with couples in long-term relationships and also couples on first dates to see if there was a difference. Now, throughout the date, the women actually swapped their clothes and accessories at least three times. Of course, they went to the bathroom to do this, uh, completely changing their, their shirt or switching from a, uh, a skirt to jeans. They also swapped their earrings, handbag, and shoes. And sometimes they also did do it right at the dinner table while the man wasn't mm-hmm. looking or looking at, yeah. the, looking at sports on the TV. Uh, only 20% of the men noticed when these changes were made. Uh, and so it's a, apparently, according to researchers, it's a brain quirk called uh, change blindness. And when a person doesn't notice, a, and it can happen to men and women, but mostly men, doesn't notice a visual difference between the change that didn't happen in front of them. Well, look, you, our brains, uh, human brains in particular, we are, but every mammalian brain, we are really good at pattern recognition. That is that is kind of what we do, is we look for patterns and everything. And actually, one of the things we're going to talk about in a second in this interview is how, um, with Charles, uh, or Mr. Duhigg, uh, is, the, um, is, is how habits help our brains use less energy. Well, we use pattern recognition to make our brains use less energy because we don't have the ability to focus on multiple variables at the exact same time. We have to fill in gaps with our brain, and our subconscious does that for us constantly. You'll see it when they, they'll remove a pixel from an image, and your, your brain will just refill that image. Or they'll, they, There's all kinds of tests like that. So, of course, we're going to do that when we're on a date, when we're talking to, to somebody. If all of a sudden the dress is different, our brain's going to go, there's no way the dress is different. There must be a problem with the memory. This is what she's wearing now, and you just record it after that. There's, of course, we're not going to notice it because, again, our brain does not have the hypervigilance necessary to take in every single detail every single time we, we look at somebody. That's called a photographic memory, and it is rare. I love that. that I, I, you had me at your brain fills in the gaps. Oh, yeah. That's really incredible look, when you think about it. It's always trying to find the path of least resistance. Also, the first time I read this story, all I could think of was how did they find women willing to manipulate their their date in this way. And then I paused and thought of every single person I ever dated, and now it makes sense. <laughs> so of course well, I was just gonna say cash, but <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. But that but this is all what's also great about this is that it's such a I I always look at everything as where's the excuse in here for, for I always look at it as okay, how can I use this for my survival and my right, relationship? Right, right. Well now it's a thing. It's change blindness, honey. Well, look, and, uh, yeah, it's not my fault I didn't notice your new earrings. Well, I, tell the story about uh, about my wife who cut her hair. Okay, so, so this is this, exceptional. This, this story is always told on me. This is very exceptional for a number of reasons. Not One, exceptional as in, isn't it awesome? <laughs> or, I mean, I would say yes, it's, it's awesome. Terrible. Okay, so you, you married a woman who was literally a hair model. I mean, at, at the height of her career, she was the very first Pantene Pro-V woman where they spent literal hours making sure that the hair flopped and was oiled properly and flopped into the frame right. If you guys remember those Pantene Pro-V commercials in the 90s, that was days of production to get every single hair shot to go just so. I mean, that's the reality of it. And then, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. all that stuff. So, 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 uh, you know, as uh, she went for a change one day and decided to just cut... All of it off. A lot of hair. Oh, she went from she went from long hair to what is affectionately known as a pixie, right? Right. right. Uh, you come home from work at that point. You're at entertainment tonight. You come home, and she's there. Well, she's standing there. This is this is a true story. She's standing at the threshold of the door when I open the door. Her shoulders are thrown back, 
Mm-hmm. She, her chest is jutting out, and she <laughs> and, and 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 she says to me, "What do you think?" And I say, "New bra." <laughs> that is a, I know it sounds like a line, but that is a true story. She was telling the story at a dinner party the other night, and and the people are going, "Ha ha ha!" It never happened. I said, "Yeah." That's exactly what I said. I'm, and so, look, now you have an excuse. Change blindness. blindness. You are in the 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 majority. Eighty percent of men wouldn't have noticed, apparently. Yeah. yeah so there, there yeah. you have it. Next time you don't notice, uh, or 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 if your spouse doesn't notice something on you, uh, you have change blindness. Is is what uh, what you can blame? It's not because they don't care about you. Hey, listen, I, we were going to do another piece, but I think we should we should get to your interview. I really do. Because okay. It's, it's the meat. It's the. This is going to be in, incredibly useful. You might want to listen to this three or four times. I mean, I literally have listened to his books three times and then read them all the way through because you're talking about a guy who is a master researcher who is not only giving you the research, but he's also telling you how to apply it to your life to enrich your life because if if we don't get our habits right, everything's going to be wrong about our life. And that's that's the point, right? We have so many unconscious habits. Look, you need to read the book because I only talked to him for, for, for about a half an hour. And and the books are phenomenal. So absolutely, if you like the interview, please go buy the book. They are and there's links again in the show notes. But uh, yeah, share this with your friends. This is like this is a gift. It really is a gift. Charles Duhigg. Charles Duhigg, thank you so much for being a part of the program today. Thanks for having me on. Look, we. I mean, I and I'm I'm not I'm not speaking hyperbolically here. We quote you and and Power of Habit all the time on the air so it's an absolute <laughs> honor to actually have a conversation with you and get to talk to you no it's a huge pleasure and honor for me i really appreciate you making the time okay so we're going to talk in a minute we're going to get to how small habits or what you call a keystone habit can actually change your life but before we get to that i want to find out how you with your background ended up where you are you were you you were a history major. You went to business school at Harvard. You're an MBA. Then you started becoming a newspaper reporter? Yeah, yeah. Actually, almost immediately. In fact, halfway through my MBA program, between the first and second year, I was trying to decide whether to go into private equity, um, which is what <laughs> I spent the summer doing, or um, journalism. And I, I decided to go into journalism. And And the reason why was because the thing that I realized about business, and I really like business, I write a lot about business because I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But the thing about business is that you you tend to be more successful in business the the more you do the same thing over and over, right? The more you you do the, a certain kind of deal and get better and better and better at it, the, the the more successful you become. Whereas journalism is actually exactly the opposite. Sort of the more every day you wake up and the more you do something new, the more you learn something new or you try and, and explore something new, that's how you get successful in journalism. And I decided I wanted to do new things. So that's why I became a journalist. Right, and that's that's fantastic. That's an amazing, amazing. Re- I've never heard somebody get into journalism because of the of the newness of it, as opposed to to the rigors of, or not the rigors, the rote nature of business. Yeah, yeah, but but it is really true, and 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 actually, that's one of the things that made me interested in in habit formation too. Right, was that there's a, there's this constant tension in our lives between what we learn to do really well because we do it all the time and what we learn to do because it's new and we're mm. really excited about it. And and I think understanding how to make both those a part of your life is a key to building a life that's really rewarding. Yeah, okay, so 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 let's get what was that aha moment for you? I mean in your book you're a reporter 
uh, in Baghdad, what was the aha moment, the thing that made you go, oh, right, habits, little keystone habits are the key to changing your life? Well, yeah, so, so a lot of it happened when I was a, a reporter in Iraq. And, and, and it was kind of two things that happened. The first was that, um, you know, right after I graduated from, from business school, I, I decided to become a reporter. And I went to the LA Times. And one of my first jobs at the Times was to go to Iraq as a war correspondent, right? And, and this is um, in 03 and 04, right, right at the beginning yeah. of, of the war. And I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I was just totally clueless, <laughs> like so clueless that like, you know, I was so excited for this and I volunteered for it. And like, I thought like, this is going to be like the, like the, the most important thing I've ever done. And I got off the airplane in Baghdad at the Baghdad airport and realized like, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what to wear. I didn't know like how to, how to remain safe. And so I was talking to my colleagues and like asking them for advice on one of the things they said is like try and do stories indoors because when you're indoors it's a lot harder for people to shoot at you because there's these like <laughs> nice thick walls around you good and advice. So, so yeah it's pretty good and so, and so i um i heard about this thing that was going down going on down in kufa which is about an hour south of baghdad by helicopter and and the the military would let me embed to go down and see this thing so so i took a black hawk helicopter down to kufa and i met this um uh this major there and this major had just been brought in to Kufa basically with one mission. And that mission was to stop riots from happening. So this is that point when there's a ton of riots going on in, in Iraq. You probably remember this from the news. Of course. And, and it, they, they were really deadly riots, right? They were, people were being killed. And so one of the military's big priorities is to stop the riots, particularly in Kufa, because there's, a, there's a, a, a site there, a, a mosque named the Grand, the Grand Mosque of, of Kufa, which is a Shia site. And there was a lot of riots around there. So the, the, the major shows up and he goes to the mayor of the town and he says, look, like, I'd like you to stop the suicide bombers and the gun runners from coming into town. And the mayor's like, those are great ideas. If you can tell me how to do those, I'll, I'll, I'll do them in a second. And the, the major has this whole list of ideas. And eventually he gets like the last one, which is, can you take the food vendors out of the plazas? And this is the first one that the mayor says, yeah, I can do that. That I can do. Everything else, I have no idea how to do. But I can take all the food vendors, these kebab sellers, out of these plazas around the mosques. So a couple of weeks later, a crowd starts building around the Grand Mosque of Kufa. And the thing that they never tell you on the television news is that mosques develop in a very specific way. So some, or I'm sorry, not mosques, riots. Riots develop in a very specific way. There will be some troublemakers who will show up mm. and they'll hang out for a little while. And then some spectators will come to watch the troublemakers. And the, as more spectators come to watch those spectators and the plaza kind of fills up, you know, four or five or six or seven hours will go by and an area will get more and more crowded over time, but relatively slowly, until suddenly the crowd reaches this kind of magic size where it's big enough that if somebody like throws a rock or a bottle, it will set off a riot and everyone right. will start rioting. And so, so a couple of weeks after the, the major had had this conversation with the mayor of Kufa, this crowd starts growing around the Grand Mosque of Kufa. And it's kind of following the same pattern, right? Like, you know, some troublemakers show up, some spectators come to watch the troublemakers. The crowd gets larger and larger and larger. Hours pass. And it gets to about 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the afternoon. It, the, sort of the time when, you know, the, the weather gets just a little bit cooler. And the crowd is at a big enough size in a small enough space 
that it's the perfect conditions for a riot. It's like ripe for a riot to occur. And, and the major himself is explaining this to me, and he's like showing me drone footage from overhead. And he says, now look at what happens at the people who are at the periphery of this crowd. And you see these people like looking around. And the major says, it's 5.30 at night. It's dinner time. Those guys, they're looking for the kebab sellers that used to be in this plaza. Oh, and, but the, and these the are not major, the rabble-rousers. These are the spectators right? these are just that the spectators. add to the these flow. Spectators, exactly, at the periphery of the crowd. But of course... The mayor had removed all of the kebab sellers. So those people like wander off, assumably to like go home and have dinner. Mm. And then there's another ring of spectators and they see these people leaving and they must think to themselves, oh, there must be a better riot going on someplace else. I'm going to follow them. <laughs> FOMO. Riot FOMO. Exactly. Exactly. And within the next 45 minutes, the entire plaza clears out of people except for the troublemakers. But the troublemakers don't have an audience anymore. So they go home too. Wow. And there hadn't been one riot in the nine months since that major had gotten to Kufa. And when I was asking him about this, I was saying like, you know, how did you know this was going to work? This is crazy. Nobody, I, it never would have occurred to me. Yeah, me either. Yeah. And he said, he said, look, the thing you have to understand about the military is the military is a giant habit change machine, right? Your instinct, right. if someone shoots at you, is to run away. But we have to teach you the habit to shoot back. Or nowadays, if you're in a war zone, you can email your spouse every night. So if we don't teach you good communication habits, you're going to get into a fight over money or something else, and you're going to be distracted when you're on patrol. Hmm. He said, we have to focus on how to teach our soldiers the right habits. Wow. And he said that, that's, that once you understand how to see the world in terms of habits, it's like someone gives you a pair of glasses, and suddenly you know, everything looks different. Your kids, why your kids are doing what they're doing, how to treat your wife, how to treat your husband, how to think about a crowd of Iraqis. It all is changed once you understand how to see habits. And so when I came back to the US, I thought this was really fascinating because it also tied into this other question, and this answers what you had asked, like, like when was the kind of moment of truth for me? Right. I basically would have this question about like, if I'm so smart and so talented, why can't I lose 15 pounds? Mm -hmm. Like, why can't I make myself get up and go for a run in the morning really easily? Right. Like, I can do all kinds of other things. I can make myself sit and work for 12 hours. But why can't I go for a 15-minute jog? Yeah. And it's really because of habits. Because if you don't understand how your own habits work, then you don't get to design them. Mm. And that's what I wanted to learn. And so that, that moment was like fireworks. You realized habit is this sort of keystone cornerstone element to making big changes like well, you, to your point the goal is to lose 15 pounds the habit is to go for a jog every day and, that's exactly finding right. that or, link or to eat more healthily or right. to you know whatever it is i mean in in my case like you know the the Eating more healthily is actually the, the key to losing weight and, yes. and feeling better and, and having like sort of a happier life is the key to, to exercise. And, but what's most important is understanding that like in some ways you don't even need to completely understand what the goal is to design the habit. You just have to understand how habits work. Right. And this is the big insight that's at the core of the power of habit, which is that we tend to think of a habit as one thing, but it's actually three things. Right. There's a there's a cue, which is like a trigger for an automatic behavior to start. Okay. And then there's the routine, which is the behavior itself. That's what we think of when we think of a habit. And then finally, there's a reward. And every habit in our life has a reward, whether we're aware of what it is or not. And it's that cue and that reward 
that really shapes why we do things without thinking about them. If you can figure out how to design those cues and rewards, if you can diagnose the cues and rewards in your own habits, that's when you can start to change how you behave. Well, okay. So to that point, in your pro in your prologue of of Power of Habit, you talk about the the super changers, the people whose lives mm-hmm. were completely up, overturned by changing one keystone habit. And are, uh, so, talk a little bit about that cue reward and figuring out what that one habit that you can change in your life that will sort of cascade into into other yeah. things. Yeah. So, so this is this idea of keystone habits is really powerful because, because it, what it basically says is look, is is look, where should you start? Right. Because if I ask you like what habits you want to change in ten minutes, you could come up with a list of twenty. Right. At least. And, at least. Right. And that's a lot. That's a lot to try and change. Overwhelming. Fact, what we know is you should probably try and change one thing mm-hmm. at a time. Not. And so the question is, like, which habit should you focus on? Right. And you're right. What, what research has found is that there, that some habits seem to have more power than others. That when some habits seem to shift, it sets off a chain reaction that causes us to change other patterns in our lives as well. The, a great example of this is, for many people, exercise, right? When people start running, one of the things we know is that they tend to eat healthier. No question. On the, right? No question. We've all experienced this. Yep. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, why Why would I eat a salad instead of a sandwich just because my legs are a little bit sore or my arms are sore from working out? But but we all accept it. But what's interesting is that there's these researchers named Oten and Cheng who looked at other patterns. And what they found is that for some people, when they start exercising habitually, they also tend to use their credit cards less on that day. Hmm. They, do, they do their dishes earlier in the day. They hmm. procrastinate less at work. Now, this is something that like none of us would have guessed, right? You, you don't think that you go for a run and then like you're going to keep your Amex in your pocket that day. Right. But for some reason, it sets off this chain reaction. And this is what we know is that it's not – it doesn't work that way for everyone. So for people who are like high school athletes, for people who have always thought of themselves as an athlete, an exercise routine is an exercise routine, but it doesn't change other patterns in their oh, life. Interesting. But if you're someone like me who never exercised in high school right. and suddenly you start saying like, I'm going to, I'm going to start running. Right. And it's scary at first. Right. I, I mean, irrationally scary. Like, like I'm going to look like an idiot in the running shorts. I don't know right. where I ought to go for a jog. I put it off for a couple of weeks just because I'm kind of nervous about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. If I start exercising in the morning, it starts changing almost subconsciously my self image. I start to think of myself as the kind of person who can exercise. And the kind of person who can exercise, that's the kind of person who doesn't buy frivolous things. That's right. the kind of person who doesn't procrastinate at work. That's the kind of person who gets their dishes washed earlier in the day because they want to get everything taken care of. Keystone habits have power because they change how we see ourselves. They influence our self-identity. And it might be in ways that are small and subtle, but if you want to find a habit that's going to help you change your life, Look for the habit that seems to you to be irrationally scary. The type of thing where like, you know, it should be easy. You know that getting up in the morning and going for a jog, that is not actually a scary thing, but you're nervous about it. You get nervous about it. Mm -hmm. That means that if you do it, when you start doing it, it's going to cause you to think of yourself as a different kind of person. And then once that that goes into place, you get uh, you get not only the self-perception change, but it almost sounds like you're saying there is a 
like a willpower glut that comes with it that once you exercise that willpower muscle it stays it stays engaged for the rest of the day that's exactly right you, you end up getting this this sort of chain reaction right where other other benefits start other patterns start changing in your life and do you think in all of your research in all of the anecdotes do you feel like exercise is that number one most important habit to change? It is the keystone habit for more people than any other habit? I mean, I think it is for a lot of people, but but I, I think it's a good place to start for many people. Right. But it doesn't have to be the only one, right? Like, like it, for some people, it's calling their mom, you know, every other day. For some people, and everyone, I mean, let me ask you, like, like if I asked you, one kind of change that seems a little bit scary, what would it be? Oh man, uh, I'm I'm thinking of all kinds of uh, of changes, um, but I mean, for me, you know, procrastination is a big is a big thing, and I know for sure there's physiological benefits to exercise, and there's all kinds of things that improve uh, in my life when I exercise every single day. Um, so I would I would absolutely I would I, not to cheat off of you, but I would say probably. Getting out of bed in the morning before my family gets up and hitting the gym is is probably the best thing I could do every day. And I'm not probably, necessarily afraid yeah. of it. The other thing is I could probably email more people in my network consistently in order to get you know uh, uh, additional you know, on camera jobs. Yeah, and and actually, if you were to do that, I think that it would set off a chain reaction. I think it would be a keystone habit because once, let's say you said like every morning I'm going to send one email to someone I haven't talked to in nine months Mm -hmm. just to remind them that I exist and to ask them what's going on, I'll bet you that at some point, a couple days in, a week in, in the back of your mind where you're not even aware of it, you start thinking of yourself as like, you know, I'm the kind of go-getter who like looks for opportunities yeah. and that's going to make it so much easier to pick up the phone and ask someone if there's something available for you, right? Like we, we tell ourselves a story about who we are all the time. And part of that is this conscious story that we tell ourselves who we hope to be, yeah. but our brains are really, really good at detecting what we, to, to, uh, at paying attention to what we do rather than what we say. And so if you can get yourself to do the kinds of things that are like the person you want to be, your brain will actually start assuming that you are the person you want to be. And it will start nudging you in the direction of what you wish that you were doing more often. You know what's crazy is how many things, how many habits, behaviors, how many elements of what we talk about on all of our shows in Improving Your Life come down to the old dumb adage, sorry for saying, fake it till you make it. Yeah, but but I think the key is to like understand why you're faking it, right? Because, because the truth of the matter is that like, just fake it till you make it will feel empty and it won't work for people if they don't right. understand what they're faking and why they're faking it. And if they don't understand that, that faking it is actually sometimes becoming the person you wanna be. Right. And, and once you understand, you know, how to build and not only that, but faking it is hard. Like yeah. if I tell you, you know, fake being a marathon runner until you make being a marathon runner, <laughs> there's not that much of a difference. Right. It doesn't make it any easier yeah. at first to, to get up in the morning and go running. Yeah. But if you understand how to diagnose those cues and rewards in your life, if you understand how to build the habits that you need, that makes it easier. That makes it more automatic. And then then you actually become the person you want to be. 
Yeah, there's a great line in a show uh, that is, it's going to be a weird reference, but there's a show, Bojack Horseman, and he starts jogging because he's trying to improve his life, and he falls over about 100 meters away from his house, and this guy that jogs every day comes up, gets in his face, and says, it gets easier. And he says, what? He says, it gets easier. If you do it every day, it gets easier. He said, but that's the hard part. You have to do it every day. Right. Right. Uh, What would you say... Of all, of all the stories, was the most like was the moment you knew you had a book. Like you're going through this research. Obviously, at, at, at the beginning, you've got your moment in Baghdad or in in, in Kuza, and uh, you have you have that moment. But w- at what point do you go? Oh, here is here is the keystone to the habit behavior link. I I think it's. Um paradoxically i mean there's a lot of stories in the book and there's and there's you know there's stories about um which by the way for, shows your 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 reporter bona fides because you are really good at taking a story to make a broad an anecdote to make a broader point yeah and that's it's part of the fun of writing right is to like tell stories about like tony dungy the the coach of the buccaneers and like what how he ended up winning the super bowl with habits or or febreze why febreze went from like this total flop of a product to a hit product because right. the marketers understood how 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 habits worked but i would say for me like actually the most um powerful one is this thing that's in the appendix of the book so it was the thing that i actually wrote last Mm. which was um, when I was trying to change a habit of my own. And, and, for, and what, what, this is actually what, ha- what happened was that um, as I was writing the book, I, uh, I got into this bad habit because it was stressful and there's a lot of work and you know, I was busy. I got into this bad habit of eating a cookie every afternoon. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Um, I did this thing. I used to go get a muffin from this little bakery down the street from my office. I used to go every day and get this cream cheese it's muffin. It's amazing. It? I, I know. It's, and it's and like you look forward to it, mm-hmm. and it's really like yummy. And uh-huh. so, so, ooh, three o'clock, you know, muffin time! Exactly, exactly. And so, so you know, in the New York Times where I was working, I I would get up every afternoon and I would go up to the cafeteria on the 14th floor and I'd get a cookie. And I actually like, you know, I was actually putting on some weight, and so like I put like a little note on my computer monitor that said no cookies. And like every day at three o'clock, I managed to like not see that note. <laughs> and go up to the cafeteria. And like sometimes like I would like it was almost like I was pretending I didn't even know where I was going. I would just like stand up and wander a little oh, bit. And then oh, what's find on the fourteenth floor? Let's just see. Exactly. Let's just check exactly. in. Exactly. I, I would stop thinking. And so so when I was calling all of these like neurologists and you know psychologists, I would ask them like, you know, can you help me with my cookie problem? <laughs> my cookie habit. <laughs> and so they said, look, okay, let's first of all diagnose the cues and the rewards. Let's start with the cues. All cues call, fall into one of five categories for the most Ooh. part. It's, it's usually a, a cue is usually a time of day or it's a particular place mm. or it's certain other people or it's a particular emotion mm-hmm. or, or it's a preceding behavior that's become kind of ritualized. And so they said, look, just jot down on a, on a piece of paper. Every time you feel like the cookie urge, just jot down those five things. Like what time is it? Where are you? Who's around you? How are you feeling emotionally? What did you just do before you felt this way? And it only took like three days for me to realize the cookie urge hit every single day between like three and three thirty. Like it was like, it, right. I mean, it was clearly a time of day, and yep. it was like it was like a clock. 
Yep. So so I told the, the neurologist that I figured out the cue, and then they said, okay, now you got to figure out the reward. And I was like, oh, that's easy. It's the a cookie. cookie right? like, <laughs> yeah. It's yummy, and it tastes good. And, and they said, no, 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 you don't understand. A cookie is like 13 different rewards in like one tasty little package. Yeah, it's perfect. And, exactly. And you got to figure out which reward is the reward for you. So is it that you're hungry, and the reward is that the cookie is satisfying your hunger? Probably In not. which case – you should be able to go to the cafeteria and have an apple, and that should work just as well. Right. Or is it that the, you need a burst of energy, and the sugar in the cookie provides that, in which case going and getting a cup of coffee should do the trick. Or are you just looking for some sweets, like a taste of something sweet, in which case like if you go up, and the way to test this is just put a little bit of Splenda on your tongue. See if that, if that cures the cookie craving. Oh, interesting. And so for like, I came up with all these hypotheses, and I tested them for over about a week. Every day at three o'clock, I'd go up to the cafeteria and I'd do something different. Or some days, because one of my hypotheses was that it wasn't, it, what I really just wanted was a break from work and getting a cookie was like an excuse to take a break. So on some days I wouldn't even go up to the cafeteria. I would just go take a walk around the block. Yeah. yeah. And what I figured out like really quickly was most of the time when I went up to the cafeteria to get my cookie, I would see some friend up there and we would sit down and like gossip for 15 or 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it was that, that it was the, it was a social reward. Wow. It was driving habit, right? That's what I was craving. I was craving talking to other people, being able to having like a little bit of human contact. And so once I figured that out, once I knew this habit, so the cue is a certain time of day, the behavior, the routine is going up and getting this cookie, but the reward is that after I get the cookie, I talk to other people and kind of socialize, then I could change the habit, keep the old cue at three o'clock in the afternoon, instead of going up to the 14th floor, what I'm going to do is just stand up at my desk and look for someone to go gossip with, and then mm. walk across the newsroom and gossip with them for 15 minutes, and then go back to my desk. And it worked incredibly. Like, like the craving for the cookie just totally disappeared because I had figured out what the cue and the routine was. And that gave me the ability to change the habit. Now, okay, so, so you figure out, you un, you, this is a, we're, we're going to call the cookie a bad habit since it had a bad right. outcome. Sure. So when you have a bad habit, and I kind of want to talk about bad habits for a little while. The the key you're saying is to figure out what that reward is and replace it with a healthier version of that reward? No, actually, it's to keep the old reward. But to figure out what the reward is, so this is known as the golden rule of habit change. And what it says is that you basically can't extinguish a habit. We know this from neurological studies. Mm -hmm. Once the neurology associated with a habit is in your brain, it stays there forever, and and you can use willpower to kind of to kind of power through it, right? To to try and um to try and extinguish that habit just by forcing it down. Right. But during moments of stress or moments of distraction, it'll come back. So the best way to deal with a habit is not to break a bad habit; it's to change a bad habit. Mm -hmm. And the way you change a bad habit is you figure out what the cue and the reward is, and then you find a new behavior that corresponds to the old cue and that delivers something similar to the old reward. So in my case with the cookie, I didn't, I didn't actually change the reward. It's the same reward. I just found a new behavior to deliver that reward, which is instead of going up to the 14th floor, just go across the, go walk across the newsroom and find someone to gossip with. Mm -hmm. And that's what's important is that once you understand, once you've identified the cues and rewards, then you can fiddle with the gears. You can, you can figure out if there's a new, healthier behavior 
that corresponds to that old cue and that delivers something similar to that old reward. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking I, I was a smoker in college and I haven't had a cigarette in years, but I, I, one of the big triggers for me when I was quitting was the after meal ritual. And right. this, this, and, and I replaced it, and I'm still a horrible coffee addict, but I replaced it with a cup of coffee. And it made, and I, yeah. didn't, I didn't, I hadn't read your book at the time. I don't think you'd written the book at the time, uh, but it made a huge difference for me. And my guess is that a big part of that is that the reward that that, uh, that, that after meal ritual was providing to you was it helped you kind of settle and sort of, you know, digest a little bit. It gave you a time to either think or talk to other people, do something with your hands. Right. You've stopped eating, stops you from picking at your plate and eating too much. Right. And what's amazing is that the coffee cup does the exact same thing, right? Yep. It allows you to sit, to settle, to digest. It gives you something to do with your hands. And that's a really important thing to say, to, to understand. Because if you had said, well, I'm going to replace the cigarette with, you know, doing push-ups after, after a meal – then that probably wouldn't have worked right. because it's not providing a similar reward to what the cigarettes provided. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great point. So I'm I'm just thinking of like all of the bad habits that I that I could replace. I uh I actually have another question. I am yeah. very good at getting up early and exercising for periods of time, but eventually I always start to wane. So for six months or a year, and I've run marathons, I know what it means to be in training, uh, but uh, you know, six months to a year, I'll be able to get up and run or, or go to the gym five days a week. And then something will happen and it will derail that habit and all of a sudden I'm struggling to get to the gym once a week. How do I, if it felt like a habit, why does that keep waning for me? Probably because one of two things happens. Either the, 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 your environment becomes unstable, and so the cues aren't there anymore that you're used to, mm. right? So, so maybe you start a new job, or your kid starts waking up earlier. Yeah. Something happens to throw off the cue. Well, I mean, I'm thinking, or, I, after each one of my kids was born, I stopped exercising for a period of time, but that yeah. seemed obvious. Yeah, exactly. Or, or what's interesting is that the same thing happens if you want to change a habit. So the best time to start a diet or to quit smoking is when you go on vacation. Study wow. after study shows that it's it's easier to give up cigarettes on vacation because you don't have all the same cues around. Right, right. But but the, but the other thing that might be happening is that you might not be paying enough attention to the rewards that you're giving yourself, and so as a result, the rewards might become less rewarding. And this is something that we know happens. So, so when you're training for a hat for a marathon, right? Yeah. There is this reward that's right in front of you, which is like you're a little worried about the race. You want to get in shape for the race. You want to finish the race. You and don't want the race to hurt too three dollar medal that I get at the end of it that, exactly. I, that means the world exactly. to me. That means the world to you. You save it forever, right? Yep. And so, like, and then, and then the marathon is over, and now what's the reward? Yeah. Like, why do you continue running? Yeah. Is there some way to and not only that, but we only really under, we only, rewards are most powerful when we recognize them as rewards, when mm. we remind ourselves and allow ourselves to luxuriate in the reward. And so now, if you're running and there's nothing on the horizon, there's no new, you know, no new race you're going to run, no new medal, now it just becomes like something that's kind of like a hassle, right? Instead of saying, okay, look, if I, if I run three times this week, after each run, I'm going to let 
let myself take a really nice long shower. I'm going to let myself relax. I'm going to let myself have like a, an extra dessert. Instead, we just kind of slip into, well, I should run because I've been running for the last six months. Why don't right. I just keep on running? But that's not a reward. It's also worth thinking about how pe when people start exercising. So, so we know that giving yourself a reward is important. We know that you have to allow yourself to enjoy that reward. But think about how most people start exercising. They say, okay, tomorrow I'm going for a run. They wake up early. They like go and they exercise. They go for a run. They come home. They're running 10 minutes late already because they went for a run. Right. They jump in the shower. They take a really fast shower. They're feeling kind of anxious. The kids got to get to school. They jump in the car. They rush the kids to school because they're late. They get to their desk. They're already 15 minutes behind when, by the time they get to their desk. They are punishing themselves for exercising. Yeah. And your brain attention to that, right? Your brain pays attention to whether you reward yourself or whether you punish yourself. And the things that we punish ourselves for, our brain makes them harder to do. So the key is that if you want to start exercising, you really have to think about how am I genuinely going to reward myself for this? Like I need to start on a day when I have time to take a nice long shower, when I have time to make myself a smoothie. Right. I need to, I need to let myself enjoy a really nice lunch after I go running. Yeah. To to reward myself. That's how your brain learns to associate that behavior with an actual reward. I mean that's that I mean that's the genius of it. That's the key, right? Is to is to is to really hack your not hack, but not because it, it's not really faking it, but it's to be it's to consciously mindfully attach your attach your behavior, your habit to that reward. That's exactly right. Okay. You, I gotta and let I, you go. Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I apologize. I, I probably have to jump, but I, I probably have time for one more question. Well, what I was gonna say is, what is? I'm, I'm gonna let you go, but I want to know what are the keystone habits for you? You're a very busy guy. You've got all these books out, and I want to just quickly plug plug. Uh, uh, obviously, we've been talking a lot about the power of habit, which is a fantastic book. Smarter, faster, better is is your newer book, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'll put and, links and, to both of those in the show notes for people to be able to buy them. Oh, thanks. I really I appreciate it. So, so the, the habits for me, first of all, exercise is a huge one, right? Because I find that it just helps me a lot. But, but Smarter, Faster, Better, one of the big insights of that book, Smarter, Faster, Better, which is about why some people are more productive than other people, why yeah. some companies are more productive than yeah. other companies, is that the more you build habits that allow you to think deeply about the questions you're confronting – the more productive you are and the less busy you are, right? And in psychology, these are known as contemplative routines, that basically the most successful people, they, they find ways to carve out time to think. Right. Because, you know, you could be busy all day long and not get anything important done. You could spend yeah, the entire sure. day. Sure, that's most of my days. Emails. Exactly. So, how, so why do some people who still only have 24 hours in each day, why do they get so much more done? Right. It's because How does Beyonce do Beyonce and I'm not Beyonce? Exactly. It's because they have these habits that force them to think more deeply. And there are different kinds of habits for different kinds of things. So there's a chapter on innovation, for instance, about what are known as innovation brokers, how people, people who expose themselves to different kinds of information and force themselves to think through how to combine those different types of information. Or, or there's another chapter on focus about how if you, if you teach yourself to sort of tell yourself stories about what's going on as it occurs, it tends to help people focus on what matters most more easily. But I would say that for me, my keystone habits are first of all exercise, but secondly, this this thing of 
trying to actually force myself to think. So I have two kids. I have a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. Mm-hmm. And like one of the things I do is when I come home, I sit down with them and I make them tell me about their day. And they hate telling yeah. me about their day. Oh, hate right? it. It's like super, Pulling teeth. Yeah. Super boring. But I make – and I force myself to find one interesting thing in their day to talk to them about. And the reason why is because otherwise it's really easy not to pay attention to your kids. Oh, I mean, so like, easy. You know, you give them meals. You kind of have these conversations in passing. But like if I find one – if I can force them and force myself to find one interesting thing that they have done today – then I actually get them to tell me about their lives. Mm-hmm. And like all of a sudden we're having a real conversation. Yeah. So that's for huge. me, that's been a real keystone habit. This idea of presentness and yeah. being in the moment. A lot of it is about like finding these, these things that seem like taste, t- time wasting routines that help you think about the choices you're making and why you're making them. Mm. That's brilliant. All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much, Charles, for being a part of our show today. Uh, If people want to follow up with you, in addition to the books, which again will be in the show notes, how can people get in touch with you? How would you like people to talk to you? Absolutely. You know, if you just Google Charles Duhigg, my website will come up. My email address is there. Um, and, and I'm on Twitter at C Duhigg. Really, any way they want to get in touch with me. All right. I'll put um, a link to the website and your Twitter sure. in the show notes. And I respond to every email I get. Do you really? So, yeah. You really? Wow. I mean, not, I mean, from readers, not every email from like Nigerian princes. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. But but every email, every reader who emails me, I will respond to. Well, that's, that's amazing. That's really impressive. I, I, I don't think I do that. It's, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good keystone habit. There you go. I'm going to start it. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thanks for your time, Charles. That's it for our show today. Once again, I want to say a special thank you to Charles Duhigg. If you want to follow up with him, uh, links to his website, his Twitter, all of that stuff, plus his books in the show notes. Again, 100% worth the read. Uh, and uh, and, and I, I mean, I cannot, I cannot sing his praises highly enough. He is a hey, hey, Listen, person. you're not going to have to give away, give Christmas presents or anything. Just give this. This Look. is a gift. The podcast, the link to this podcast is a gift because it's it's life changing. <laughs> right? Lieu, yeah. In lieu of presents, I've given yeah. I'm, I'm texting you this. John link. Tesh says <laughs> says I should give you the interview with Charles Duhigg and Gib Gerard. So if you Merry li- Christmas. If you like this show, do please share it with your friends, as John said. Also, rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. It helps us out a lot. And again, tell your friends about it. If you want to follow up with us, I am Gib Gerard. You can find me at facebook.com slash Gib Gerard or at Gib Gerard on any one of the social media platforms. Again, links to those in the show notes. And John, of course, is John Tesh at John Tesh on Twitter at John Tesh underscore IFYL on Instagram and facebook.com slash John Tesh, where we spend a lot of time, lots of posts, lots of the information that we do, lots of videos that we make are all posted to facebook.com slash John Tesh. Plus, we do Facebook Lives all the time, and we are actively involved in the comments. Here it comes. It's going to stop. Thank you, guys, so much for listening. Appreciate you.